pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that uh, it is so rich and so deep. And Lord, we, we know that we often neglect uh, much of the Old Testament and particularly some of the more minor points as we see them. But Lord, we pray that uh, this minor prophet would, uh, would not be minor in our hearts by the end of the evening. We pray that you would bless our study, bless our time, and Lord, that you would uh, uh, not only richly bless us through the, the book of Habakkuk, but that you, would, um, that you would give us a desire and a passion to, to get to know your word better. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, as I said, we, uh, we finished Isaiah 6. We're going to start Isaiah 7 after a guest speaker next week. So I didn't want to do this uh, get started and then stop. So we're doing this one-off on Habakkuk. It fits in quite nicely. He was um, almost certainly a contemporary of, at least of Jeremiah. He may have crossed over with Isaiah a little, but he... Uh, he is dealing with a very similar period of time. He's dealing with uh, the coming invasion of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And at the same time, he is also dealing, therefore, with very similar issues. And we'll see the problem of idolatry raising its head again here. So let's have a look. Certain people have uh, suggested that I won't get through all three chapters, so we will... We will I take that on the chin because it's probably true, but we'll see what we can do. Let's get started. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is great. Um, this is very similar to many of the Psalms, Psalm 73, as I mentioned this morning, that um, have similar themes. The righteous being hindered and the wicked prospering. It's a common theme for much of the Old Testament. Now, here, Habakkuk is dealing with the sin and the problem within Israel at this stage. So he is looking at Israel, he's looking at God's chosen people, and while he's looking at God's chosen people, he's seeing there being violence, there being injustice, there being destruction, there being strife, and he wants that dealt with. And uh, verse uh, 4 is particularly, uh, I think, instructive to us in this regard it says so the law is paralyzed that's a lovely phrase literally it says the law is chilled that doesn't mean it's got its feet up and it's drinking a beer or something it means that it's it, it, it's it's seized up it, it's not um it's not able to do what it it it's not functioning as it should the, the problem with any law is if you don't instigate that law then there may as well not be a law for better or for worse and so it is is that the people of Israel had the Mosaic law they were supposed to keep the Mosaic law and there were punishments if they didn't keep the law 
But if the people who were ruling Israel weren't, weren't meeting out those judgments, then of course the law in effect is not there. It's being paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. And the reason for that, in the second half of that verse, is for the wicked surround the righteous. The, the picture is one of there being a few righteous people and they are being surrounded by the wicked. There are laws, there are rules, there are things that should be done a certain way and the people who want to do things the way they should be done aren't there, they're outnumbered. The people running the show are the wicked and therefore justice goes forth perverted. The law is being ignored or worse still, being used to do things it should not be used for. And so Habakkuk brings this complaint before the Lord. And it, it's fascinating to me that Habakkuk saw the oracle. The word here is see in verse 1. So it's not like he audibly heard, he saw something. And there seems to be some sort of discussion. It's as if he saw a, a vision or a dream in which he is communicating with God. Now, it's interesting, I, I, one of the things I love about Jeremiah the prophet is that Jeremiah is able to say, he goes and he preaches and he says, you know, the Lord says this. And then afterwards we get a little bit of a picture about what Jeremiah says to the Lord after he's delivered the message and the struggles that he's having. Many of the prophets like Isaiah, you don't see so much of that. There's just like, this is what God says, this is what God says, this is what God says. But, but with Jeremiah, you get that more of that interaction. Of course, with Jonah, um, another book I'm itching to teach, um, there, there's a lot of interaction that goes on. And, and, but it's not as common. And so with Habakkuk, it's interesting that Habakkuk, he sees this, um, this oracle, this vision, where, um, where he is making a complaint before the Lord. And then the Lord gives this answer. And we talked about this very briefly this morning. But I just want to take a little more time than we did this morning when we were rushing um, and just see the de some of the details here. So if the key verse of the complaint of Habakkuk, or the, or the questioning of Habakkuk, I think it's probably better, is verse 4, then I think the key verse in Lord's answer is in verse 6. So let, we'll, we'll read through verse 5 to get there. It says, look at the nation among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Okay? Let's, let's just understand the principle first as God begins his reply. What he's saying at this point is, do you want to see my work? Do you want to see how I'm dealing with situations? Go and look at the nations. Now, the Egyptians have historically been a problem for the uh, Israelites. Exodus, in case anyone wants a history there. But they're not an issue anymore. Why? Because the, the Babylonians have just destroyed them. They've conquered them. Now that's a new problem that's coming, but... God is doing stuff. And isn't it interesting that Habakkuk says, hey Lord, I'm seeing all of this injustice, I'm seeing all these problems, I don't see that you're doing anything about this situation. And it's as if uh, God is saying to Habakkuk, hey, lift your head up. Lift, lift up, look, look around. You're looking down here at Israel. There's a bigger, wider world. 
And I'm God of the nations. I'm God of the whole world, as well as being God who has sovereignly chosen Israel. And so he says, look at the nations and see what I'm doing. And I think that there were, there were nations rising and nations falling at that time in multiple areas around them. And, and remember, God is the one who rises up nations and who brings nations down. God raises up kings and brings kings down. God is sovereign over these things. So God is at work. But then specifically in this regard, look at verse 6. For behold... So the four here is the link. You want to make sure you see the link with this with verse 5. God's doing a work in the nations, and specifically, I am raising up the Chaldeans. You want to see what I'm doing? You think that I'm looking at the injustice of Israel, and I'm not doing anything about it? I'm doing something about it. Do you want to know what I'm doing? Have a look over at Egypt. See what I'm doing. Do you remember those Egyptians that were a problem? They're not a problem anymore. Why? Because I am raising up the Chaldeans. Okay. How does that resolve the problem of Israel? Well, let's read on. The Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. It's amazing, isn't it? God has chosen Israel. They're his chosen people. They're supposed to keep the law and live a certain way. But God can raise up other people. People without a law. People without the worship of God, and he can use them as well. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter, hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on, press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Oh boy. Do you know sometimes you pray and you ask God to deal with the situation and then he does and you kind of wish you hadn't prayed? <laughs> That's kind of one of those situations right here. That's a backhook one. What's happening here is simply this. He's saying, look at Israel. Look at the state of Israel. Israel needs to be punished. Israel's not keeping your law. Israel, the law's not working. Something needs to be done about this God. God says, yeah, you're right. I'm doing something about it. I'm raising up the most nasty, proud, vicious people with an incredible military might. So mighty are they that it has lifted up their pride to the point that they have, in essence, worshipped themselves. They think they can't be touched. They think they can't be defeated. And here we are with God doing his work through them. So Habakkuk dares open his mouth again. Now he's got another problem, and I think we know what the problem is right now, don't we? Before he had a problem with, you're not doing anything about Israel, now he's got a problem with what God is doing with Israel. Always be careful to doubt, never to doubt God. Are you not from everlasting Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Listen to that. That, that my friends is a statement of faith right there 
God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising them up. The Chaldeans are going to come. The Babylonians is the Chaldeans. They're going to come and they're swift and they're mighty and they're proud and they're vicious and they're going to come in and that's going to sort Israel out. And he says, okay, Lord, you're, are you not from everlasting? In other words, you're eternal. It's the sovereignty of God. My holy one, set apart. I don't know your ways. We shall not die. God is sovereign. God is distinct. He's holy. He's set apart. And God made covenants with Israel. And yes, there will be many who will die. There will be many who will fall by the sword. There will be many who will be destroyed and killed and then taken into exile. And there will be death and destruction all around. But Israel will not die. There in the face of one of the most horrific revelations that Habakkuk could have, could have considered, there is a statement of faith. This is horrific, God. But I know you're going to keep your covenant. Isn't that powerful? This is a model to us right here. <laughs> Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Remember what Isaiah? Isaiah, probably just before Habakkuk, possibly the end of Isaiah's life, the beginning of Habakkuk's life, quite close time span. We're not sure exactly when, but they're close to one another. But we know that Isaiah talks, well, we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, Isaiah talking about the rock, the rock that will be a stumbling block, the rock that will crush. Habakkuk sees what Isaiah has written. I have no doubt that this is an allusion to Isaiah. By the way, I, I, I talk about allusions and intertextuality all the time. I think time-wise, that's one of the closest here, really close succession, something that was very contemporary and fresh that is being alluded to here um, uh, in verse uh, 12, in verse 12, and we'll, we'll deal with that in Isaiah chapter 10, by the way, Isaiah 10, um, I think I've referenced that recently in some other regard, but in Isaiah 10, we will look at that, but you, a rock, have established them from reproof, so the rock is going to crush and destroy Israel. Not destroy them forever. They will not die. He's going to keep their promises. He's going to keep his promise to them. But the other side of the coin is that God has risen this nation up for judgment and that God is able to do that because of the unbelief of Israel. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, he's now got an issue with the Chaldeans. He said, God, why don't you judge Israel? And God says, funny you should mention that. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And he says, okay, okay. But why the Chaldeans? In your own words, they are bitter and hasty. But they're not nice people. They're vicious. Why them? And he's, as he says here, why a man more righteous than he? Why would they be used to, you know, Israel for all its failings is not as unrighteous as the Babylonians. So why them? And then this is Habakkuk still speaking of them. He says, he brings all of them up with a hook. Okay? 
Um, oh, sorry, I missed a verse. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them, all of them, up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and, glad, and is glad. So the Babylonians are pictured as a fisherman who, who hooks all of these fish, who puts them all in net and just gathers them all. And though the Babylonians are obviously to blame for their, for their treating of humanity as mere fish. But God is mentioned here as well. You have made mankind to be like fish. You, you've left us, you've left these people, nations, uh, just in, uh, as uh, vulnerable, that's the word I'm looking for, as vulnerable as fish. You're just gonna, they're going to hook them, hook them all up and net them all up. And, and worst of all, look at this, he, he's glad, verse 15, therefore he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. In other words, this is essentially what God said in the end of uh, the first answer, their might is their God, because they're so powerful because they're so mighty militarily, because they're able just to gather up these people like fish, because they are basically getting their wealth from stealing from others, because they live in luxury as a result of their destruction of the nations around them, they end up essentially worshipping their own might. They end up so proud and puffed up that they basically are self-worshippers. They're, they're idol worshippers, and this will come out, but their idols are the ones who have made them mighty, and therefore they will worship in their own might. And so, verse 17 of the chapter ends, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's the issue. It's like, so you're going to judge Israel with this nation who's destroyed Egypt, is now coming to destroy Israel. You, you, you know, I understand we won't die. I get, and he says straight off the bat, you're going to keep your covenants. I understand that. But why use these people? Why them? Why people who are so evil and so wicked? Do they just get to get away with this? And essentially, his second question, his second complaint has become identical to the first one. Why is it that these wicked rulers are allowed to, to, to rule over Israel? And God says, well, I'm going to deal with that with the Chaldeans. Why are these wicked people allowed to rule over Israel? To conquer Israel. And then in chapter 2, um, he concludes his statement. I'm not happy with this chapter break. I'd rather it was a verse later. But uh, anyway, I will take stand at my watch post and station myself on that tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so, in essence, and I guess this is why the chapter breaks here, it's Habakkuk still talking, but now it's as if he's talking to himself rather than to God. He says, okay, uh, what you'd have is you'd have the watchman who would be on the gates and on, on the walls of a city and would look out and keep watch for anyone attacking. And... The prophets were often, particularly Ezekiel, was often referred to as watchmen, watching for the nation of Israel. And 
Habakkuk has seen the terrible danger that's coming to Israel, and he views himself in a figurative sense of being someone who is uh, a watchman waiting on the tower. And then what he's waiting for, though, now is not the Chaldeans to come. He's not waiting to see what enemy might arise. He's waiting to see what God's answer will be to this issue that he has raised. So God's second answer comes now in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, Yahweh answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. It seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. So, as I dealt with this a little bit more this morning, I won't spend too much on this, but the vision, what God is, is showing in here, he says, write and make it plain on tablets. How do we know he did that? Well, we're reading about the vision now, so I guess he did. <laughs> That's the answer to that. So he, he, he's told to write this vision down so he may run who reads it. Um, I think the idea is twofold here. Firstly, as I said this morning, I think the idea is that you would be able to see it in haste. It's not something that is, you know, Habakkuk is three chapters. Isaiah was 66 chapters. I think there's a, a sense in which the person who gets it can, can see it. Um, perhaps my analogy this morning of running and billboards isn't helpful. I think the idea is perhaps more that a person who's got this can run off with it and take it. But you, you can take it either way. But the idea is certainly that there is a degree of, um, I don't know so much as brevity as clarity in that this, this needs to be given to the people. Um, and the reason that it needs to be given is because the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So what is going to happen in this situation is going to happen. God has decreed it, it will happen. And then in verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Okay. Now the he here is the same he at the end of chapter 1. The he brings all of them up with a hook. It's the Chaldeans being referred to in the singular. Okay, he, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. Now notice this, he lifts himself up, but he's not upright. He thinks he's mighty, he thinks he's great, but he's not upright in the eyes of God. And this is the theme we've seen so often already in Isaiah, of God lifting up the humble and bringing down the proud. The Chaldeans have been raised up by God for a purpose, but they are proud and they are unrighteous and God is going to deal with them appropriately. And in contrast, the righteous shall live by his faith. So the one who is proud and is not upright, God will deal with him. But this is what, this is what Habakkuk needs to understand right from the start. Habakkuk needs to understand that the righteous one will go on living by his faith. The ones who have faith will be okay. Now, in one sense, in light of the Chaldeans, yes, Israel is righteous. That's what Habakkuk was saying. But I think more to the point is this. 
The problem that Habakkuk initially raised in chapter 1 was that there were unrighteous, wicked people in Israel who were running the show. How are you going to deal with that, God? I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, says God, and I'm going to deal with them. And it's going to be this horrendously difficult situation. There's going to be this death. There's going to be this destruction. But the ones who are righteous, they'll go on living by faith. What kind of faith? Faith like Habakkuk just showed when he's told of what's going to happen. And he says, we as a nation, we're not going to die. He trusted the covenant-keeping God. He sees this terrible picture of what's coming. He's given a vision of the Chaldeans coming to deal with Israel, to destroy them as they've destroyed the Egyptians. And he says, Lord, I know this nation's going to be okay. What's he doing? He's responding to terror with faith. He's responding to trial with faith. And what God is saying is that his purpose in all of this is to show the righteous. They will go on living by faith. I've been a Christian long enough to have grown up in... I got saved at 12. I went to Christian youth groups. I went to... Uh, I had friends when I was a teenager who were Christians. A huge number of my friends from school and university, who were Christians with me as I understood it then, are not walking with the Lord today. And I suspect that for the majority of them, they never were. What happens? What happens is God brings in trials. God raises up terrible circumstances. And the unrighteous are exposed and removed, and the righteous go on living by faith. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his, uh, uh, as his own all peoples. Wine is a traitor. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? You know, a lot of people, uh, alcohol has led to many deaths by people trying to jump things they wouldn't jump if they were sober, trying to climb up things they wouldn't climb up if they were sober. It's a traitor. And it says he's, it's an arrogant man who's never at rest. And the idea in that picture is that alcohol, when, when you're drunk, um, it can give you the impression that you are funnier than you actually are. All you've got to do is be with certain family members at, uh, at certain holidays and you're reminded of that, that people, when they've had a few too many drinks, suddenly think that they're funny when they most definitely aren't. They think they're stronger than they actually are. They think they're more capable than they actually are. And if you go to pretty much any bar on a Friday night, you'll discover they think they're more attractive than they actually are. That's kind of how it works. It's a traitor. It's deceiving. Now, that is used as an analogy... This the, the arrogant man who's never at rest, of what the Chaldeans are like. They're there worshipping their own might, but they're not as mighty as they think they are. They're going to come to an end. And interestingly enough, they love their wine, and their wine was part of the reason for their destruction. So there's an, there's an irony there as well. But their, his greed is as wide as Sheol. His death 
uh, like death he has never had enough. So Sheol is, in the Old Testament context, literally the place of the dead. Not hell as in the bad place, but it's literally death itself. And, you know, they say today that there's two things you can't avoid, and they're death and taxes. So, you know, we, we today, even today, have the, the same idea that death is something that is inescapable. And, and so, in the same way that death is inescapable, so the Chaldeans will never give up. They're greedy. They're not going to take the Egyptians and say, hey, we've conquered the Egyptians, we've done well, we're rich, we're mighty, let's just enjoy our wealth. No, 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 they're going to come and get the Israelites. And they're not going to rest at that either, they're going to keep going. And that is going to be their downfall. They're going to collect as his own all peoples. And so that then leads into this latter half of chapter 2 and God's response where we have five woes. Five woes. Um, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Okay? Now, I, I know I've got to finish all three chapters. I'm going to do it. And chapter three is important, so I'm going to be particularly brief on these. But I do want to draw your attention to something in the breadth of it. The first woe is the woe to those who heaps up what is not his own. That they're sudden, they're taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. And they plundered. And there's... Um, uh, there's violence that's come as a result. Woe in verse 9, second woe, to, to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. So he's taking from others for his own benefit and for his own safety. How's that going to work out? Woe to him, verse 12, who builds the town with blood and founds the city on iniquity. What a mighty nation the Babylonians were but they were mighty at the expense of others. They built their town with blood, their nation with blood. Um, and then, I'll just, I'm just skimming over these, but I don't want to miss this verse because it's a well-known one. So let's do this. Verse 13, Behold, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that people labor merely for fire, that nations weary themselves for nothing? In other words, what he's saying in that, in that connecting verse is he's saying, you know, you're building your whole nation on blood, but what you don't understand is that God is the one who determines nations. God is the one who, um, if people, you know, work hard and they end up with just warmth, if they end up working really hard and accomplish nothing, God's in control of that. So God has raised up the Chaldeans. They might be mighty in going and taking and killing people and grabbing everything, but it's only happened because God's allowed it to happen. God is still in charge of them. And his point then leads to this statement in verse 14. For the earth will be filled. I've got the tune in my head now from this old hymn. Do you know this old hymn, Craig? For the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I won't sing it for you, but I know that I remember that from school from an old hymn. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God raises up this nation, God raises up that nation, but one day the whole earth will be his and all nations will worship him and the earth will be filled with the glory of God and none of this will be happening anymore. Who do you think you are, Chaldeans? that you think that this has come because of your cleverness and your might. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. 
That, I think, more than being a sexual thing, is one of shame that they steal and they conquer. And as a result of that, everybody is left without anything. You will have your fill of shame. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. That's a, by the way, as far as poetic imagery goes, this is good stuff. It's pretty vivid, but it's pretty good. So what he's saying here is he's saying, you are gathering all you can. You're making your neighbors drink your wrath poured out, and you're leaving them with nothing, and that, therefore you're leaving them naked. Okay? So there's, there's them being bereft of anything, and that is pictured as nakedness. And what he's then saying is, actually, you're the ones that are ultimately going to be shamed, and when you're seen naked, not necessarily literally, this is just the analogy that's being used, that you and your nakedness will reveal your uncircumcision, revealing that when you are robbed of everything as you have robbed others, then you will see that you're not God's chosen nation. You're not the mighty nation. You're not the nation that is going to be the conquering nation. You are just a bit player in history. It's just a lovely bit of analogy, I think, the way he works it out. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. You see, the cup is the drink. The drink is the wrath that they pour out. And then here, now that same wrath is going to be poured out upon them. And verse 18 moves on to idolatry. This really is the final woe. The woe comes in the next verse, but it's this, this section starting in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it in a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. He's just pointing out the stupidity of idolatry. Here's an idol, let me worship it. Oh, wow, it's, 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 it's like a god, right? Yeah, it's a god, we should worship it. Who made it? I did. So you made God and you're going to work. It's just craziness. And that's the point that Habakkuk is, or God is pointing out to Habakkuk here. Verse 19, then that leads to the woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Ah, oh, man, I wish I was doing this like slowly. There's so much good stuff here. The, the linking of the silence of the stone to the silence that they should keep before God. The being gold and silver and made beautiful on the outside, but still no life or breath in it. The, the, the allusions there to Genesis and, and God. When he makes his creation, he made man. And man should worship his creator, whereas what man is doing is being the creator of something he worships. And there's all of these illusions going on, and it's fascinating stuff. You simply need to know, woe to you. <laughs> woe, 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 woe. Woe to you, Chaldeans. They might be raised up from God, but God is going to bring judgment to them. But what I do want you to know before we leave chapter 2 is simply this. That the things that he is going to bring woe to the Chaldeans for are the very same things, you know, if you notice this as we were reading through, that, that Habakkuk had issue with the leadership of Israel. God is going to judge Israel because of their idolatry. God is going to judge Israel because they are dealing unjustly. God is going to deal Israel because they are proud and lifted up. The complaints against the Chaldeans are the complaints about Israel. So God's going to deal with Israel and all of Israel's sins by bringing in a nation that conquers them 
in regards to all of their sins. And that certainly is no accident. Chapter 3, almost there. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigioneth. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but that's a cool name. By the way, if, you, if you're ever stuck for kids' names, you can call your kid Shiggy and say it's biblical. Just a suggestion. Shigioneth. Um, it's interesting here, the first two chapters seem to be the vision that Isaiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah, I've got Isaiah in the brain, Habakkuk has written down into, uh, uh, he's written down the visions that he saw, and now there is a prayer that comes afterwards in response that somebody else has written down. They felt that Habakkuk's response, his prayer should be kept in the same place, and I'm glad that he did. Oh Lord, Verse 2, Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. We're going to see that this is a key thing here. Key theme in the response of Habakkuk is fear. Fear. Listen, I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but when you face trials and you're tempted, like we saw in Hebrews this morning, when you face trials and you're tempted to turn from God, that is the wrong response to trials. The one who raises up trials, the one who is sovereign over all things, when he brings difficulty and hardship into our life, the right response is, is fear. Why, if God has brought this into your life, would you respond by going off and sinning more? That, that makes no sense. If God is able to bring justice, if God is able to bring discipline, if God is able to bring judgment, should we not fear him? And certainly that's the immediate response of the faithful one, Habakkuk. Your work, O Yahweh, I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now notice what he's saying here. And again, I'm familiar with this verse from songs as well, modern songs, not hymns now. But again, anything that's familiar, you want to make sure you understand the verse in its context, okay? He says... I've heard the report of you and your work. Uh, no, sorry. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. So I've heard the report that you've given. I've heard what you've said, okay? And your work, the way that you do things, Lord, I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the middle of all of this, he says, revive it. Revive your work. Right now, you're bringing death and destruction, but bring revival. Now, certain churches would take this verse and run 10 miles with it, way away from the context. We're not talking about revival in the way that some churches will talk of revival today, but we are talking about it in a sense of God doing things that are good things in man's eyes, things where we can see God's name being lifted up. Not God doing things like raising up Chaldeans, but God doing things like raising up Israel. That's what he's talking about. And he says, in the midst of the years, make it known. Make your works known. I think that prayer has been answered, hasn't it? We see what God has done, the purpose of it, it's been made known. And in that, in God accomplishing his goals in the midst of his wrath, in God um, making known his majesty and his glory in the midst of wrath, in that wrath, remember mercy. It's such a crucial phrase. 
In wrath, remember mercy. Don't take that verse out of context, my friends. I have heard this verse, verse quoted so many times by Christians, and they quote this verse, and I tell me you've not been guilty of it. I'm sure you have. I certainly have. They've quoted this verse, in your wrath, remember mercy, to mean, God, when you bring wrath, please end it. That's not what the context is saying. It's saying, accomplish things that are merciful in the midst of your wrath. It's, it's not, he says in the midst of twice. He's not talking about doing something after the wrath. He's talking about during this time of wrath, during this time of suffering, that there would be some good things that would happen, that, the, that God's name would be revived, his work would be revived. In the midst of all of this, that good would come from it, that the wrath itself would ultimately be an expression of mercy. That's what it means in context. If we think that this verse means, God, when there's wrath, please stop being wrathful and bring mercy. If you think that's what the verse is saying, you've just taken it from its context. In its context, it's saying, through your wrath, remember to have merciful outworkings from it. He knows that God's going to do what he will do. And... Uh, and he wants there to be good that's going to come from the midst of that. Verse 3, God came from Teman. Oh, I could get stuck here. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? I'm looking at the clock. The Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Let's keep reading. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Let's just think about that for a minute. God comes from somewhere. The Holy One. Not any God, the Holy One, right? We know who we're talking about, yes? God comes. The earth is full of his praise. His splendor covers the heavens. This is not a secret coming. This is not God coming to the earth and um, no one knowing about it. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed. Do we know of a time when God has turned up and he's turned up following great suffering and he's been there and destroyed eternal mountains eternal literally is of the ages mountains when used symbolically are always symbolism of kingdoms kingdoms again we'll see that in Isaiah everlasting hills sank low. There are things that, kingdoms that look like they would be there forever, and God shows up, and they're all ended. And his coming is bright, and it's glorious. Anyone know the time in history when that has happened yet? I don't. But I know when it, time when it is going to happen. I believe that this is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if you want to look up where Teman and Mount Paran is, you know where the second coming is going to happen. I'll leave that for another day, shall I? 
I could get lost in all of this. There, there's, there, is, there are details here that uh, we could debate another time, but let's look at the main point. The main point is this. God is going to show up. And he says in past tense, he's seen the vision of God coming and ultimately conquering all. All nations are going to be dealt with. Everything is going to be put right. It's all going to happen. And then he says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian, and did tremble. In other words, and I know that we often see this in the Old Testament where first and second comings are combined, where different prophetic eras are combined because they're dealing with the same theme. And essentially, I believe what's being said here is he's saying, I've seen the time when God shows up and brings all nations to an end. I've seen the end of Babylon. I've seen the end of this era. Why? Because I've seen the end of it all. Whether he's saying he's seen the end and therefore he knows that Babylon falls, or whether he says, I've seen the end, and also I have seen the time when Babylon falls, is really neither here nor there. The point is, is that God is sovereign over all the nations. Was your wrath against rivers? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in place at the light of your arrows. Uh, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Okay, so we have this description of judgment and God bringing this nation and other nations to an end. And then we have this lovely conclusion in verse 13. You went for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. Habakkuk has seen a vision of the end. And what he said, by faith, without seeing at the beginning, we shall not die. God will keep his covenant promises. We see now that he's seen it. He knows that what he believed was true that God will work for the salvation of his people and the crushing of the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That is the destruction of the enemy. And I think probably in this context, it almost certainly refers specifically to the Antichrist. And then we have a little Selah, which lets you know that the, the ending of that section and that uh, we move on in verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And by the way, when you see uh, sea used in imagery, it's often speaking of uh, demonic powers and forces. And I think we're talking about the conquering of all things, human mountains and demonic sea. And uh, 
What's interesting here in verse 14 is there seems to be a what the enemy meant to harm God's people is used against him. How that works out, we wait and see. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bone, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Listen. Verse 16 kind of sums it all up. Um, Habakkuk, he sees all of this. You, we've done three chapters in one here, okay? So yay me for starters, but also Habakkuk has seen all of this in one here. He's seen, God, what are we going to do about this injustice? And God says, I present to you the Chaldeans. The Babylonians are coming in. They're going to do my work. And there is this horrific thing. And when Habakkuk sees the second coming of Jesus Christ, he sees God conquering all. There is the assurance that God will work all things out. There is that assurance, right? So does he say, oh, that's a relief. I was all worried about that, God, but you're going to destroy the Chaldeans, just like you're going to destroy every nation and make everything all right. That's fantastic. Let me go and have a cup of tea and put my feet up. No, no, no. He knows the next thing that's going to happen is the Chaldeans coming in and destroying Israel. The temple being destroyed, the nation being destroyed. They'll survive, the covenants will live on, but there is going to be wide destruction. And so he says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come on the people who invade us. If there's a word that goes hand in hand very comfortably with faith, it's the word wait. We'll see that in Hebrews 11. The word wait goes with the word faith. Yeah, I believe God's going to sort all things out. But we get agitated. Why do we get agitated? Because we lack faith. We have to wait for God to deal with it in his own time. We have to wait for God to bring justice. Let me be absolutely frank. Habakkuk almost certainly, almost certainly, did not live to see the death of the Babylonians. It's possible he survived, possibly went into exile, and possibly like Daniel, he was an old man at the time that the Chaldeans were finally conquered by the Persians, Medo-Persians. Possible. Probably not. It's quite possible that you will see injustices in your life and you will never see justice done. But you will see justice done, ultimately. Just maybe not in this life. We have to deal with it, we have to accept it. And so the book of Habakkuk, and by the way, you saw the sailor at the end of verse 13. It's a lovely song. Maybe we could, our musicians could put some of this to music for us. This is, this is a good song here, right here. And, and uh, the end of verse 19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. They sung this stuff. I tell you what, if you want to sing this, here is some powerful lyrics that should be in a worship song in the last three verses. And I think that these verses, this is why I love context, guys. You know I love context. This is why I love context. Because how much more profound are these three verses going to be? Because we've just done the whole book. Look at these last verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, hold there. Verse 17, everything he's just listed is the failure to produce good fruit. The failure to be a success in your workplace. The failure to accomplish your goals. The failure to do the things that you want to do. The failure to get the life you wanted. The failure of everything in life. Yet, I will rejoice in Yahweh. It's so deep and so profound and so difficult and so important. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Is Israel going to be saved from the Chaldeans? No, they're not going to be saved. <coughs> that judgment's definite. It's happening. There's no escape. But Habakkuk is saved and he knows he's saved because he's righteous and he's living by faith. He's trusting in God by faith and he's walking by faith as evidence of the faith that he's exercised and as a result he sees that he is one whom God has saved. Yahweh my God, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What's that saying? It's saying this that in the most difficult of circumstances God is my strength to stay upright. You ever seen those deers? I've seen pictures of goats on trees that look like they are completely vertical and the goat is walking down the tree. I mean maybe 88 degrees rather than like 90 but I mean pretty much. You see these, um, these deer in mountain crests, going up these incredibly steep gradients, standing on these incredibly thin ledges. You know, it's one thing to worship God on flat ground. Do you know, if you ask me to walk in a straight line, if you paint a line, you ask me to walk in a straight line, down the middle of this church, I could quite happily walk in a straight line. The other day, I had to walk across a straight line in a tunnel in Griffith Park where the entire tunnel was flooded and there was one little ledge where I could walk on dry ground. You've never seen a person wobble so much in your entire life. I can walk fine on a straight line when, when everything's flat around me, everything's dry around me. But when I know that either side I'm going to end up getting wet, I start wobbling. Now, you put that straight line of the same width and the same strength, you put that up high, and I'm not moving, let alone wobbling. I'm not taking a step. I hate heights. But what Habakkuk says, using that analogy, is he says, I'm going to be like the deer on the ledges, up steep slopes in high places. Why? Because Yahweh is my strength. I've got nothing. Everything's taken away from me. And there's no fruit here, there's no fruit here, there's no produce here, there's no success here, there's no accomplishment there. I've, I've lost everything. Yeah, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to keep walking by faith like a deer with just a tiny little ledge to walk on. Little cracks, little crevices. I'm going to keep 
going because God is my strength. That, my friends, is what it means to walk by faith. It's not that in wrath he removes wrath. It's that in wrath he remembers mercy in the midst of that wrath. It's that there he is strengthening us to walk those thin lines, even in the most difficult of circumstances. This is an amazing book. It's a picture of what it means to walk by faith, to be a person of faith. And I think it's very apt that Paul in Romans and Galatians and... um, And our writer of Hebrews chose to quote from this book to speak of faith because it is a great picture of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this book. And Lord, though we may not read Habakkuk every day, may these lessons be be, uh, there daily in our hearts. And Lord, may we rejoice. May we rejoice in the God of our salvation regardless of circumstances day to day. May we trust you when there is seemingly no reason to trust. May we remember you, your character, your covenants. May we remember the blood of your Son. And may we walk by faith. Amen.